Hello and welcome to JP Morgan's Global Data Pod. I'm your host, Nora Santivani, and joining me today is my colleague, uh, Catherine Marney from the Global EM Economics team. Hi, Katie. Hi, Nora. Thanks Hi. for having me. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thanks for your time. So Katie is our resident expert on EM capital flows. It's a topic she's very passionate about. It's one that she's written on for many years. And recently she has launched a new exciting tool for tracking and now casting capital flows in emerging markets. And she is here to talk to me about this new tool today. So before we dive into this uh, exciting topic, maybe let's take a step back and I'll, I'll set the scene here a little bit to provide some context, maybe for our non-EM expert listeners on you know, why this topic is, is so relevant to us right now. Uh, coming into 2022, we took the view that uh, the resilience of emerging markets would be tested by the ongoing pandemic uncertainties and tightening global and domestic monetary conditions. In the event, what we had is multiple adverse shocks hitting emerging markets that were even more significant than we thought. Uh, we had uh, Russia's war on Ukraine. We had inflation surging beyond any reasonable expectations. Uh, we've had now central banks globally tightening very aggressively, including the Fed. And that has, among other things, pushed the US dollar about 15% stronger. And on top of all that, China activity weakened significantly at the start of the year, ended up in a very volatile stop-start pattern due to the, the country's Omicron resurgence. But the real surprise, I think, in the face of all these very large adverse shocks has been that EM economies have actually managed to stay pretty resilient here. If we look at the, the 23 core emerging markets countries we follow, you know, we're on track for a GDP growth of about 3.5% this year. You know, that's roughly half of last year's pace, but it's still a bit above its pre-pandemic trend. Uh, now, we have argued that a lot of this resilience has to do with the accumulated excess savings of the private sector that has helped to fund uh, large fiscal deficits and also keep EM current account balances broadly manageable. That said, more recently, we've seen stress in parts of the EM universe rising. We see that several countries are uh, facing strong downward pressure on their currencies, on asset prices, and that's coming amid a renewed deterioration in EM current account balances and a decline in uh, private sector savings. Now, this pressure is evident most of, most of the time in distressed countries, particularly in the EM frontiers, but it's also elicited the question of whether EMs more broadly might be seeing uh, sort of stresses similar to what we saw in the earlier crisis episodes, such as the taper tantrum or the GFC. So Katie, uh, with, that, uh, with that intro, when we think about the evolution of EM capital flows, what are, what are the sorts of main shifts that have occurred over the past uh, decade when we uh, think about you know, the period since the 2013 you know, taper tantrum? Uh, that perhaps make the current setup somewhat different and that maybe explain some of this resilience that I've, I've outlined here. Thank you, Nora. So first, let's be clear what we're talking about here, because capital flows are sort of a wonky term that we talk about in you know, economic circles and especially in EM, but what are we actually referring to? So when we talk about capital flows, we're looking at the balance of payments. So, you know, the net transactions in and out of a country, foreign transactions in and out of a country, and that can be, again, by residents and non-residents or foreigners and locals. 
Uh, these can be things like equities and bonds, which is what we typically look at in our world, but can also, it can also be when somebody buys a factory or a country or a corporate takes out a loan from a bank. So it's very all-encompassing. In the past, we used to look at the net transactions. Why? Because it looked it aligned most closely with what foreign investors were doing. But what we've seen in the last two decades is that things have really shifted. Um, EMs, as you said, need less, well, as we've seen in the past, have needed less funding. Uh, their current accounts have generally improved. Um, and at the same time, foreign bond and equity flows have declined. So that's one important change since the 2013 taper tantrum. Foreign uh, portfolio inflows have declined. But lo EM local markets have also matured, uh, and EMs are diversifying their funding sources. For example, non, uh, more residents are investing abroad. There is a more diverse set of sources, as I said. And this has meant that resident and non-resident flows are roughly the same. So you know, we don't get the full picture if we only look at what non-residents are doing. We also need to, we need to broaden out, think about a broader swath of funding, and also think about what local investors are doing, um, not just uh, non-residents. And as I said, that's been the biggest shift we've seen in, um, in how we thought about capital flows um, in the last decade. Okay, yes. Okay, so the rising importance of resident uh, capital flows, that's that's very clear and, and, you know, very interesting. Now, when we look more recently, let's say the past two years uh, since, um, since the pandemic uh, hit, I remember in the immediate aftermath of the pandemic, you and I were writing about a sudden stop of capital flows uh, into EM. Uh, we were kind of talking about the sudden stop similar to what we saw um, at the time of the, the GFC. Uh, in 2008. But, you know, after this initial kind of crisis period, we've seen that capital flows actually have done pretty well. Um, you know, it looks like they have actually surged to perhaps levels not seen since before the, the GFC. So how do you explain this, um, this surge? Like, what are the types of flows that have supported that, that, that yeah. resilience in EM capital flows? Yeah, Nora, you're absolutely right. So in the immediate time after the pandemic um, lockdowns, you know, we were talking about a sudden stop. It, it looked like a, a you know, GFC style sudden stop, um, which, you know, has all types of consequences for EMs. You know, it hits growth, it hits um, investment, it hits, um, you know, current accounts and, and you know, prices and so on. Um, and but then what we saw after that initial period is we saw, first of all, a surge um, in portfolio flows and then since then, we've seen more, more, more weakness. And so what has been perplexing, as you said, is that EM capital flows have been relatively resilient um, since that time. And again, this really speaks to just the um, diversification of funding sources that EMs have turned to uh, since then. So one important component of this has been multilateral funding, like the IMF, uh, which they've turned to for a backstop um, and also to fund larger fiscal deficits. Uh, we've also seen FDI has held up, which again is surprising just given the sort of uneven nature of, of growth in EM. And then, uh, and then finally, uh, you know, we have seen residents still investing abroad, uh, and this has been mainly in in DM equities, which again is is not surprising given that you know the the, the strength in equity markets that we've seen since since that period. Um, so in other words, it's been a much more mixed picture um, than just what the portfolio flow um, story would would suggest. Mm -hmm. Okay, and, and how have capital flows behaved in the more recent months? Like if you look at the last six months, you know, we've had an increasingly challenging backdrop of, 
you know, rapid Fed policy tightening, the strengthening dollar, slowing global growth. How have EM capital flows evolved in, in, in this more, more recent period against this challenging external backdrop? What are you seeing right now? Yeah, so I would say, you know, overall, it's a story of um, resilience with some weakening. Uh, so EM flows have, as you said, faced some significant headwinds. Um, you know, the, the you know, stop-start nature of growth in China, um, you know, the shock uh, from the Russia-Ukraine conflict, and then finally, and most importantly, uh, the stronger dollar and tightening global financial conditions led by the Fed. So, you know, we saw uh, capital flow starting to weaken at around this time last year when, you know, markets started waking up to the fact that the Fed was, you know, going to be lifting off, um, you know, in the near future. Uh, and that really started to begin, that began waning on foreign portfolio flows. And this has con continued in fits and starts since then. So, for example, when, you know, the Fed hit the button on 75 basis points, um, you know, earlier this year, uh, capital flows did, did suffer. Um, but then, you know, when the risk tone turned better over the summer um, in July and August, uh, and markets were looking for some sort of pivot, portfolio fl uh, capital flows in DM generally improved. Um, and then again, once, once the Fed reasserted its hawkishness in September, uh, you know, capital flows have been, have been weakening. So far in October, we've seen, um, you know, still, still weakness, but it does look like some of the, some of the, um, some of the uh, uh, damage that we saw in, in, in mm. September is, is starting to, is starting to, um, is starting to abate. But, you know, what's interesting in that environment is that EMs have turned to other sources of funding. And that's been a big part of the story of why up until now, portfolio uh, capital flows in broadly in EM have been relatively resilient. So again, um, you know, they've mm. turned to um, they've turned to FDI, they've turned to other sources of, you know, funding, um, you know, resident sources have been an important part of that as well. Um, and so, again, it's it's been a story of, of, of weakening, certainly because of the global environment. But I would say. Uh, relative to what we would have expected based on the story and portfolio flows, it's been one of broad resilience. Okay, so broad resilience, I mean, that's that's really been the, the narrative for EM this year. But amid that resilience, we've also seen significant country level differentiation, right? We've seen the weak links and we've seen the stronger uh, stories within EM. How, how does that get reflected? in the capital flows, which countries have benefited from most from capital flows and which ones perhaps have received the least flows? Yeah, so what we're, I mean, what we're seeing, again, capital inflows are partially a function of funding needs and growth. Um, so LATAM and EMEA are where current account deficits are the largest and therefore they need the greatest inflows to fund themselves. Um, and again, that's that's been the story that's played out. So we've seen, you know, broad broad strength across uh, across LATAM, um, you know, to a lesser extent in parts of, of the CE4, but certainly still there as well. Um, Asia has tended, you know, up until recently to, to have large current account surpluses. So generally they've needed the least and you've seen large outflows um, by residents to the rest of the world uh, because again, they have mm -hmm. access excess funding. Uh, that's that's generally still been the story, but I would say, you know, in, in net terms, you you seen the greatest weakness in EM Asia. And how about China, the elephant in the room? <laughs> the elephant, yeah, and China has also <laughs> seen uh, large, large outflows. Um, our China team writes writes extensively on this uh, every month. So um, I, I definitely would recommend our listeners, uh, you know, look out for, for that. 
All right, so getting uh, just a little bit more technical here uh, in terms of the capital flows monitoring tool that you have. So how would you say our, your approach to tracking capital flows differs from the other well-known trackers, capital flows trackers and forecasting models? Like how do you construct it? What are the variables that go into it just at the kind of high level? Yeah, sure. So existing trackers tend to look at cumulative flows, so that, that net flows concept that I alluded to before, or only at portfolio flows by their by non-residents, again, um, typically bonds and equities. Because why? Because that's the data that's most available. That's the, that's the data that we have you know, at the highest frequency and most, um, most available across different sources. What our, what our tracker does is we go into significantly more breadth. Um, so we, we're looking at all the main components of, of capital flows, both by residents and non-residents. And again, the motivation there is really to have a broader conversation about how EMs are funding themselves because the story has become, you know, is more diverse than it was mm. before. Um, we also look at actual BOP data from start to finish. Um, so, you know, we are able to, um, you know, we're able to look at data that aligns with balance of payments tracking um, uh, accounting um, methods to, to follow um, capital flows. And then, you know, we start with a subset of, of 10 EM countries. So we have, um, we have three from LATAM, two from Asia and five from CE um, in EMEA. Uh, and again, it's a, f around five high yielders, five low yielders. So I would say it's a representative sample. Mm -hmm. um, we're also tracking daily bond flows and equity data. Like, like other trackers, but we've also added on um, M&A data, which is a proxy for FDI. So again, this between the high frequency data and the actual BOP data, we get a timely picture about six weeks from the end of the month. Um, mm -hmm. And then we forecast using the other available data to get us the rest of the way. Okay, so so clearly, you know, one of the main advantages over, say, the quarterly BOP data would be that this is a lot more timely, right? Like we just get it much earlier. But in terms of its performance, how well does it track actual capital flows in, in the BOP data? Yeah, that's right, Nora. So there is a tendency to rely mainly on non-resident portfolio flows to, to, to have the conversation about what's happening more broadly for capital flows in EM um, because the BOP data comes out with a three to four month lag. So by the time we get it, we're you know, the story has changed, the, the subject has changed, we're talking about something else. Um, and but the other issue is that looking only at by portfolio flows tend to un, tends, has tended to underestimate the resilience of capital flows in DM more broadly over the last couple of years. Um, what our tracker does is it allows us to have a more comprehensive conversation several months before the BOP data comes out. So what we found is that for non-residents, our tracker uh, has an accuracy of about 88%, so you know, very strong. Mm -hmm. And then for net flows and for residents, it's around 75%, which again is, is a you know, broad improvement on what's available now, um, both in terms of accuracy and in terms of timeliness. Okay, great. Okay, so maybe just one last question would be, I mean, we know that sometimes data quality or availability in EM is, is not amazing. So how much of the overall EM universe are we really able to track uh, using this capital flows uh, tracker or now caster? Yeah, so we we on a monthly basis we cover about 50, we currently cover about fifty percent of the core EM universe. Uh, at this point, we're not including any of the frontier markets or the EM edge economies, as we call it at JP Morgan. Uh, and then our nowcaster, on the other hand, estimates flows for 
for 21 countries of our Korean universe, uh, both for residents on, and non-residents. So again, it's very comprehensive. Okay, Katie. Well, you know, fascinating stuff here. Uh, clearly for me, you know, the, the main takeaway and lesson is really that focusing only on portfolio flows, not what non-residents are doing, can be pretty misleading at times. Uh, we need to look at the interplay between non-resident flows and resident flows. We need to understand compositional changes in instruments, types of investors and the various flows. So we will continue to monitor these flows to gauge uh, EM's resilience as external financing costs continue to rise here and foreign funding needs rise as well during these challenging times for the global economy and policymakers, EM in particular. That concludes our podcast. Katie, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you to our listeners, including all EM enthusiasts. Thanks.